and we'll get stuck into it. Um, dear Lord, thank you again for bringing everyone uh, together this very cold morning. We appreciate that we've got this time to be able to spend in your word, Lord. Please let that warm our hearts as we get our, our day started um, in preparation for the, the, the service proper. Uh, we thank you again that we've got this, uh, this book of yours, this, this short epistle that we can really delve into, Lord. Please uh, help us to get through as much material as we can today in anticipation of the break that's coming up. But uh, please let all of the, the words and conversations that we have today be edifying to each other. And uh, we ask all of this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we'll run through a little bit of, at the beginning. Now, I'll do a little bit of a recap of the, the three rebellions that we did um, uh, from last week, and I'll, I'll reread them, do a little bit of a recap. I'm not going to go into the same level of detail. The reason I wanted to do um, a bit of a recap is the... Hang on, I might move that. I sound very loud. Is that too loud for everyone or not? No, it's okay. All right. Um, the reason I wanted to do, do a little bit of a recap was that uh, effectively what I want to do is draw a couple of different things out of it. So it was more digesting the stories and why they related to the Book of Jude to begin with. Uh, but now we can delve into it in a little bit of a... deconstruct it a little bit differently and compare it to another set of triplets and examples that he's going to bring up. Um, and, and you can see the increase in speed with which he starts delivering these things. So it kind of captures everyone's attention up front and then moves through things rather quickly. So um, I might start in verse 5 and move on to, to verse 8 and we'll do that as a block and then we'll do uh, 9 and 10 together uh, and then, then step into 11 and we'll probably get halfway through verse 12 today, uh, which is intentional. If I only get halfway through, it's not because we ran out of time. That's where I'd actually like to get to. Um, so start, the book of Jude starting uh, verse 5 here. Uh, I will therefore put you in remembrance that though ye once knew this, so he's telling them you knew this stuff already, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So verses 5, 6 and 7, three separate examples that we then linked back to verse 2, being the Lord's mercy, so the, the deliverance of the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, God's mercy and all of the things that he did for them. Um, peace in, in regards to the angels that had their first estate, that had that perfect communion with the Lord, but still chose to do something on their own. And Sodom and Gomorrah turning this concept of agape, this brotherly love, into something that's self-serving and self-satisfying in relation to, to immorality, specifically sexual immorality. And then in verse 8, he, he effectively recaptures that. He goes, you knew these things historically, and I'm talking Old Testament, Book of Enoch. We're going right back to the beginning here. And I'm going to say, likewise, the, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion and speak, uh, speak evil of dignities. This, this concept of dignities here is this, this uh, God's glory. Um, and we'll get into it in a little bit more detail. Um, the, the, a, a better interpretation in this specifically is to speak evil of angels. Um, and, and I'll talk on that slightly. But regardless of, of, of the specifics of the interpretation, it's still God's will. The angels are under his authority and, 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 and will and dominion, as are we. And he's saying, he's speaking evil of, of effectively God's will, his, his, his judgment, his assessments, etc. And this, this verse is effectively a flip of order of the three examples that he gave in 5, 6 and 7. So I'll step through them rather quickly. And it wasn't, um, there was a bit of a, um, an area in the recording last week. So I'll just give some of the references because I know there are a couple of people um, listening to this um, overseas. So I just want to make sure that it's out there. So 
the example that we've got here, Israel's rebellion, that's an Old Testament example speaking specifically to Jewish history. And remember, he's got an, an audience of, of, of converted Jews or Christian Jews and, and converted uh, Greeks or Gentiles. Uh, you know, these are Christians, but again, he's talking to very experienced Christians. They know what they're talking about here. He says, you know, at the very beginning, I'll put you in remembrance of this. You know this. I know that you know this. So he's writing to people that, you know, he's not having to give them easy examples. He's giving them tough things to digest here. So this Israel's rebellion that's in verse 5 is a reference to basically the chapter 14 of Numbers, and it speaks to the unbelief of Israel. And we've got specific references there, but it is really just um, Numbers 14. And what I want to summarize here is, is, is what it was about and then God's condemnation in each of these examples. And it's a theme that repeats throughout the book. And that's why I wanted to get everyone to absorb those stories last week so they could understand the, what we were talking about. Now give it in the context of this epistle specifically. So God's condemnation here, death in the wilderness and 40 years of wandering. Um, so that's, that, that was his punishment at that point in time for effectively Israel after having been delivered out of Egypt, having their, their, their pursuers washed away, fed manna from heaven, fed birds, um, um, you know, protected from other invading armies or anyone that would want to wipe them out, um, protected at, at multiple circumstances. And even when they got out of line and they were punished, there was still redemption within that. You know, the snakes in the wilderness that were there, there was still a provision somewhere of God's mercy. It was mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. They finally make it to the edge of the promised land and it's still all too difficult for them. They're still complaining. He said, oh, I'm done. Your bodies will drop in the wilderness. That was the, that was the death in the wilderness. You will not see this promised land in a physical form. You're done. And for, for that to occur, it wasn't an immediate wipeout. And this is something that I've been thinking on. And again, something to take away. I don't have an answer for this one. But in so many circumstances, God's judgment is very swift in a lot of circumstances. But here, there's 40 years of wandering. These people got to raise their children knowing that they would be entering the promised land, but they themselves would not be. Um, So again, it's just something to think about in so many of these examples. It's an immediate judgment straight away, but this is one that is prolonged. Um, I feel that there is, this is my opinion here, but I feel that there is a a difference here in his monks that Israel's rebellion is slightly separate because there are believers in that group. Um, In a lot of the other examples, they're they're out and out rebellious. I, I reject God's authority. Here it was a rejection of his mercy to the extent of grumbling and complaining. And we see that this leads to very much um, a bad heart and a bad attitude. Um, it's this concept as well that Jude, Jude talks about throughout the epistle, which is basically converting this grumbling and complaining into something more. Um, so this did exist. Uh, you know, th- There would have been unbelievers in that group, absolutely. Um, but I can't speak to any of that. It's just something to consider that this is one of the few examples in this entire epistle in which it's not an immediate... Um, however, there is a correlation to the extent that in all of the examples, everyone's other punishment, there might be an immediate punishment, and then they're held in, in bondage or held in some sort of limbo, not, not limbo in the, in the sort of uh, context of, of the, the Catholic Church or anything like that, but kept in this paused state, especially for the angels that we've got in the angelic rebellion coming up, kept until the Lord's coming. Um, so there is a bit, I guess, of a... Of a, of a parallel there in which you are able to live your life here sinning and doing what you want to but there will be a day of judgment Israel's rebellion was similar in which there was this time period and they were not able to enter into the promised land um, again it's just a bit of a digression it's it's 
something to think about more than uh, that more than um, anything specifically that Jude's calling out. What he what he is calling out here though is you remember what happened to Israel? They were not able to enter the Promised Land. They died in the wilderness, and there was forty years of wandering. One year for every day that they were they were uh, getting to the Promised Land, and and for the complaining that was there. Then we have the uh, example in verse 6, the angelic rebellion. This is an ancient Hebrew, non-caconical, apocalyptic religious text, a very big mouthful. Effectively, it's coming from the book of Enoch, specifically the book of Watchers, um, in which these angels had communion with the Lord. They sought the women of the earth, and that was effectively going to be their new way of finding peace. It was self-sought. I want this. It said they lusted after the women of, of the world, and they went after them. God's condemnation, and it's a, it's a quote from it, they, they were to find no mercy and no peace. That was the angels. They were bound until the time of judgment. But their condemnation overall, regardless of whether it was in the immediacy of that or the future state of, of their punishment um, in eternal fire, it was no, pers- no mercy and no peace, which is ultimately, for everybody that's not saved, the, 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 the end position for them as well, which is, is very tough to hear, um, especially for, for loved ones that we've got. But again, coming back to verse 4 in this, uh, sorry, verse 3, we are to earnestly contend for the faith. Saved and unsaved alike, we need to pursue the word of God. Yes? Do you conclude in this passage with regards to the angels that they were No, so there's, there's, uh, it's, it's a good question. So um, just to repeat it for, for everyone, um, especially listening, um, uh, is, is there a, 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 these angels, who are they specifically in relation to, I guess, the, the, the Bible, the fallen angels? So, so this is a separate rebellion. I sh- I'll clarify that. This is not the rebellion of, of, of Satan and the angels against God's um, 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 uh, you know, throne. I am equal to him or I, I can overthrow this. And he convinces multiple angels to follow him and they're cast down. This is a second rebellion. So these were angels beyond that point. It's a good question. I I should have clarified this up up front. And if I didn't last week, apologies. Um, This is a second rebellion. Uh, When we talk rebellion here, this isn't an out-and-out rebellion. We're picking up swords and axes and we're we're, we're fighting against someone else is a rebellion. These are more subtle. You know, Israel's rebellion wasn't an out-and-out. We don't want what you've got for us, Lord. It was, we think we've got something better back in Egypt. The angels in heaven, we know we've got perfect peace and communion with you and we've got authority over you know, your, your, your world to the extent that you've given us that authority, but we think we can find peace and love somewhere else. Um, so yeah, it's a second rebellion as it were, but it wasn't an out and out, you know, we're, we're going to war, it's we're going to seek something on our own, hidden. And that's what Jude really is, Epistles was talking about as well. It's not the out and out rebellions, it's the subtleties and, and how people are able to, to infiltrate the church or infiltrate a congregation and, and sow seeds of disruption within it. But yeah, good question. Does that answer, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. okay, all right, all good. Um, and then the third example that we've got in, in verse 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah's rebellion. And this is very much an Old Testament example, but it very much speaks to the Greek culture of the time. You know, there was a lot of sexual immorality within the Greek culture at this time, which was the norm. Um, I don't want to get into any of the details of it, but the, the history of Greek culture, and this was everywhere. This is not to say that Greeks were, you know, in any way different or, or more or less um, um, 
into, into that immorality than any other culture of the time, but it's definitely part of it, and it was very much celebrated. A lot of their gods condoned it. Um, instead of condemning it, they were able to do whatever they wanted to um, uh, with a lot of impunity based on, on a lot of the religions of the time. Um, so this was, you know, this is making reference to Genesis 19, which is the complete destruction of Sodom. And God's condemnation, it was fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. That's in Genesis 19, 24, 25. And it was raised to the ground. Nothing, nothing was living. Um, so the reason I wanted to go over that as a, as a bit of a repetition was there was a lot to absorb last week. And I kind of wanted to just re-emphasize what we were, what we were looking at there. Yeah. Yeah, so it's an interesting question. So the question overall, and, it's, and it, he actually makes reference to Enoch about three more times in this, um, whether it be from a historical or a prophecy perspective. So the question here is, um, because Jude's quoting it, yes, it's non-canonical, it doesn't form part of the Bible, is it, is it um, something that we can rely on here? Um, there's, I don't think there's a definitive answer there, and I don't, I don't want to tread into to strange waters here, but effectively, this was, these were books that were very well known in the culture of the time, and that's why I kind of started with the culture in the, in the first session, to sort of say, look, he's talking to people that were very well read. It wasn't just... And the Bible didn't exist at that point in time. There were, this, this, this did not exist. It wasn't fully translated. There were multiple copies of it around. Um, um, some not translated as well as others. We're, we're very blessed to have got the Bible that we have now, which, is, which has been preserved. Um, but <clears throat> the reference that he's making here, the story within it, although there's all the extra details, it still does exist in Genesis, um, that, that, that there was this... Rebe- it, it, the story in itself, the details of it are definitely expanded upon in Enoch, and it being non-canonical, how much reliance you can put on it. Should we be putting it on a pedestal? Absolutely not. Is it equal or even slightly less to the Bible? Absolutely not. But it is referenced to. The story does exist. And to the extent that it is in the epistle, yes, I, you know, we can rely on it. Every part of God's Word has been preserved in this Bible. What is in here, specifically verse 6, yes? What's in First Enoch or, or the Book of Enoch, I'd say no, in my opinion. Um, and Enoch does get pretty out there with some of the things that are in there. Um, again, you know, we'll, we'll find out on the other side where, where, where that book stands. Um, but again, that one hasn't had, even the translations that you've got, you could get three different translations and they are wildly different. You don't have that with, with the Bible. Um, yeah? It's always nice to get a little bit of validation, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes God reveals these little things along the way, just uh, that little bit of, of, you know, if you needed a little bit more to, uh, to hang on to. But oh, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, so 
we've, we've got in each of the examples, and, and this is a knowledge, you know, I'm talking God's condemnation here. He does refer to it here. He says, afterwards destroying them that believe not, reserved in everlasting change unto the judgments of the great day, and um, set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire for, for Sodom and Gomorrah, for the angels, and for, for the uh, rebellion of Israel out of Egypt. However, you know, we've got a lot of information that I put up each week. How is that achieved? That's by going back and looking through the books. This is what they would have done when they received this epistle. It wasn't read in its entirety and I understand and absorb all of that. There was work to be done. And delving into it, this is where you get to. So, again, I covered it last week, but effectively these three examples are a turning the grace gifts of mercy, peace and love into something lascivious. It is, it is a self-righteous, self-serving, um, self-absorbed, mercy is rejected, peace is sought elsewhere and love is made selfish. Now these are examples that we can then see in individuals and this speaks to the warnings that we get later on in Jude, but what are these behaviours and what do they exemplify? Well, they are questioning God's provisions. These don't need to be out and out as well. We might have these struggles internally to an extent as well. We're questioning God's provision. Did God really intend that for me? Is this the mercy that I've got? Will life get better? Will it get worse? We're questioning God's mercy in our lives. We've already been saved. For those that have been saved, you've got the greatest gift that's ever been given. It's, it's not a guarantee of an easy life, but you've got the greatest gift that you can be given. There needs to be an, a, an acceptance to be given, which if you're saved, you've, you've taken that step, you've answered the call, you've, you've accepted that gift, but then to rely on that gift and use that as the source of, of, of your strength. Seeking peace and pleasure outside of God's kingdom and dominion. And it's self-serving, self-satisfying love. And I say, I put sexual uh, in brackets each time I've got immorality. It doesn't always need to be. A lot of the references here are of that in nature. But anything can be corrupted to become that. You know, A pat on the shoulder in support of someone can very easily be turned into that in someone else's uh, attitude and mind. Um, so these are the three rebellions summarised again just to, to get through them, just based on what we went through last week and how much there was to absorb. So thank you for, uh, for putting up with that. Um, uh, uh, you know, re- re- uh, repeat of, of what we covered. Um, and then as we step into verse 8, so likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. What I wanted to focus on here was this concept of dreamers because we didn't have enough time last week to really get into it. I read some passages on it. Um, and, and as I said, this, this speak evil, despise dominion, uh, despise dominion and defile the flesh is this, this repetition of what was before, and we've got some references there if anybody wants to go look those up. But he's saying likewise, that's specifically in the same way. This happened back in the Old, Old Testament, in the Book of Enoch, in these old references, and they are happening today. Now, even though this is the last epistle before we hit Revelation, it's not to say it was the last letter written. The New Testament's not in any specific order, but it is New Testament. He's only made Old Testament references at this point, and he's saying likewise, this is happening today, and he does this all the time. All of the examples he gives are old. This has been happening since the beginning of time. And the examples he gives specifically of these interlopers that have, that have injected themselves into the congregation or group that he's speaking to here, it's behavioural, but this is the current thing. They're the same. They despise the flesh, despise dominion and speak evil. Now, specifically, he makes reference to this word dreamers. And again, I, I gave some examples last week, but there was one specifically that we didn't have time to read out. Um, and that is in, my apologies, I have not flipped the page, Jeremiah. And that's a long one, so I won't 
read it out in its entirety, but Jeremiah, I'll, I'll read it to you, um, uh, but it's Jeremiah, for your own references, chapter 23, verse 23 to 40. I'll do 23 to 32. Uh, so he says, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and a God not far off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I have heard what the prophets said, that the prophecy lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. Right? These are specifically false prophets. These are individuals who are going around saying, I had a dream. God told me this. I know this. This is their dreams. They listen to me. The Bible says this, but I had a dream that says this. That's what it really means. If you start hearing that, you start questioning that individual or you walk the other way. That's what Jude's getting at here. Right? The Bible is complete. The Lord said, and I said this right back in the first one, where the Lord said, I am finished, that wasn't, uh, there wasn't an asterisk behind that. It's done. If anyone's adding to this, and the book of Revelation is clear at that right at the very end, not in text form, not to add or remove from it, but if people are doing that verbally as well, I, you know, God told me in a dream or an angel, I saw this, this has happened, this is definitive proof of X, Y, Z. Through my experience, test it through the Bible. So he says... Um, how long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of deceit of their own heart. And, and this is something we'll come back to in which their own heart is, is, is a corruption unto themselves. <clears throat> which think to cause my people to forget my name in their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbour, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. Remember this part. So this is in verse 27. Right? So these dreamers are telling every man about the things that they've, that they've, that they've, that they've dreamt, their, their interpretations of what's happening in, in, in the scripture, etc. As their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. Because there's another example coming up that is specifically that, and that's why I wanted to call out Jeremiah. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. So let him, let him, he can tell a dream if he wants to. And he that have my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Their dreams are irrelevant in the eyes of the scripture, and that's God saying that. Saith the Lord is there. He is telling you that if these, someone's telling you in a dream, it's irrelevant. It is nothing compared to his word. Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith... Right, that, that, is, that is, I don't know if you've been around individuals that do it, but they'll start their sentences a lot. God says this. You, you think it says this, but he really says this. Walk the other way. Right? He is against them. He says it several times. I am against them. So I just wanted to, to emphasize that one in Jeremiah, and specifically, even in Jeremiah, is calling us their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. So that's, that's a repetition uh, that we've got. So it was a tr set of triplets in the original, um, three examples, and then we've got uh, the, the rule of three that pops up again um, in, in this particular verse, in verse eight. Then we move across to an, an almost a reversal in this angelic submission. Again, we covered this last week to an extent. We're talking about the assumption of Moses. This is another Jewish text. The actual uh, story that he's referencing here doesn't exist anymore. That's been lost to time. Um, so it's assumed based on all of these other pieces of literature that run parallel time-wise with the Bible. They make reference to the assumption of Moses. Um, it was a prophecy that he told um, uh, prior to his death. All of these stories, that's what makes up the assumption of Moses. There are a lot of um, Jewish 
texts in Hebrew that make reference to this story, but that story no longer exists in any form inside the original text. It's, it's been lost to time. Now, what I want to highlight here are some of the terms. My apologies, I will flip back to Jude. Um, so in verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. And then verse 10, But these, so now we're, we're, here's, your, here's your Old Testament example, or here's, here's a non-canonical piece of, of scripture that I'll throw at you to remind you what's going on in the past. But these, these people that he makes reference to in, in verse 4, these certain men that have crept in unawares, but these speak evil of things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. So we did verse 9 last week, but we didn't quite get to 10. So let's go through it now. This term, um, uh, when he's making reference to, to basically what Michael didn't do. So here's the devil saying, Moses belongs to me as a murderer. He's, it, there's, there's conjecture as whether it's, it's the devil wanting the physical form of Moses to defile the body, or he's contending for the spirit. Um, again, the original scripture is lost, or the original text is lost to time, but there's, there's different interpretations even within um, 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 these examples. What he's contending with, is it the physical body or the soul? It's somewhat irrelevant for the purposes of the, the illustration. It's, it doesn't matter what it was. What the story is getting at is that Michael has the devil in front of him. The devil's casting an, uh, 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 you know, accusations of, of this, this, this individual soul, body, whatever, belongs to me. And Michael, the archangel, the head of the angels, who has probably m- the most amount of authority second to God at any point in history still doesn't put the devil in his place. He's, um, um, I'm at, God's the only one that's going to cast judgment. Now we think of everything else that's going to come up. This is the good example, right? And he's saying, rebuke. That's an admonishment. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord take care of that. I'm not, I'm not getting involved in this. He'll protect the body. And there's a lot of examples through, again, other, other texts. Michael sometimes referred to as the, the grave digger of God in some historical texts. Again, non-biblical, but, but these books that set, aside, that set aside, whether he was protecting the body, you know, we know that God buried Moses um, and that it was an unknown location. It was obviously, according to this text, known to the devil at that particular point in time. Um, and again, is it, is it over the body? Is it over the soul? It, it's a somewhat irrelevant or mostly irrelevant. The bit that we want to capture here is the fact that you have an archangel that still says it's, it's up to God to judge you. That's God's job. That's not mine. That's not my place right? And we're talking back in verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the slave of Jesus Christ. I am to do what the master says and not to question it. Michael knew at that point in time, it is not my job to do this. In a good way, not, it's, he's not washing his hands of it Pontius Pilate-wise. He's, he's saying, no, that's, that's not God. We'll take care of this. And that's just a reminder to do it. And again, um, I recall the parable I read out, I think, uh, ver- um, week two, which was uh, of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Um, a good read if you want to go through it again. So I have this example where we've got example in Old Testament, example today of these interlopers. And here we've got the second time that we've uh, exposed these individuals. So they speak things, they speak evil of those things that they know not. Ten minutes. <clears throat> So speak evil is this concept of, of 
blasphemer. Now let's compare that back to the blasphemia, and apologies for, for the not sounding Greek on any of this, uh, but Strong's number is different, which basically means the word in its original text is different. So G988 back in verse 9 compared to G987 in, in verse 10. The difference being here, the, 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 the blaspheming was a vilification. It was a negative uh, uh, connotation on that individual. So Michael was not going to call someone a villain effectively. I'm not going to call you out for what you've done. God will do that. Here, it's, it's a contrast to that. This is someone speaking evil, right? It's not a, I'm going to put you down. I am, I am, go, I am I, it, is, it is a deliberate um, uh, concept here. Now, the contrast that he's doing is very obvious. It's between verse 9 and verse 10. Michael's your gold standard, and that is, that is a spiritual wisdom. And here, we've got a worldly wisdom, right? So what we're talking about here in verse 10 to know something naturally, it's almost this concept of a gut feeling, for want of a better term, right? I know something naturally. I'm aware of something to be true because I've got eyes and ears and a, and a brain and I've put that together. You know, I know not to uh, jump off a cliff because of the height that's there. I perceive it, I understand it, it's a worldly knowledge. He's saying that these speak evil of things which they know not, but what they know naturally is Bruce Beast. It is a mind, a worldly wisdom that he's got here. It's, a, it's, a, it's all in the head. There's nothing spiritual about it. So what I want to do here, we've got a couple of references to Corinthians to get through here. Um, so uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 7 to 8, and I'll read them out and I need to flip through it because uh, we'll be jumping around a little bit. Um, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. He's talking about saved people, which none of the princes of this world knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. All right? If we were all saved, we would have recognized. But we didn't. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a wonderful thing that the Lord made that sacrifice for us, but the fact that it had to happen is heartbreaking. Okay, so what we're talking about in verse eight, uh, sorry, verse ten, is is this concept of, of, of you know in in again worldly terms, it is this moral relativism. There's a there's a quote in relation to this. There are no absolute rules to determine whether something is right or wrong. That's a that's a worldly way to look at it, and we'll get into that when we look at philosophy in the later half of Jude in in, in later lessons. But it is a concept of basically, you know, as one of the philosophers effectively put, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, if we're in this room, I'm hot and you're cold, right? Uh, my truth and your truth don't align. It's, it's all too difficult. We don't need to worry about it. Your truth and my truth don't align. And that's an easy way to reject something, right? If God's word's too difficult, if, it's, if it weighs too heavy on your heart, if it's something you're uncomfortable with, uh, it's not what it means to me. I don't need to follow that specifically. That's this worldly wisdom creeping in. It's not a spiritual discernment. It's a my discernment. I don't want to follow that because it doesn't ring true to my truth. Uh, and you'll hear that a lot these days. It's my tr- I'm speaking my truth. Um, this, this is what I believe. It's got nothing to do with the Lord's truth or his will for us as servants. That's, that's what we are. Again, he's speaking to saved people here. So it's easy, even in most people's minds as they're reading through Jude, he's talking to the unsaved. This, this letter is only for the saved. It's for us to contend. So he is talking specifically to us and he's saying that there are these individuals that are only determining it using worldly wisdom. Be mindful of that. Don't fall for that. 
This is in contrast to verse 9, which is a spiritual wisdom, a spiritual discernment, specifically to have the mind of Christ. Again, we're in uh, 2 Corinthians, <coughs> verse 14 to 16. 16, yes. Um, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can they know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? So how can we possibly comprehend God unless he's giving us that spiritual discernment? We've got the word of God, absolutely. But I don't know if any of you have tried to read it before you were saved. It is a very different ballpark to reading it after you're saved. Um, And then this final part of 15, but we have the mind of Christ. He has given that to us. That is that concept of spiritual discernment. And again, I put it at the front of all of it. I kept it for, for now. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lead not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. You'll get to where you're going on his time, on his path, at, at, at his predetermined and prearranged and, 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 and loved manner and way. You do it on your own, you're only going to stumble and fall and that is exactly where we go in the next one. The epistle of Jude undermines worldly wisdom. God condemns worldly wisdom. So I'll read uh, 1 Corinthians 19 uh, to 25. <clears throat> For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. He pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, and we've got called back in Jude, unto them which are called to the save, we've answered that called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I'll leave you to read 26 to 31 on your own, in your own time. It's a wonderful uh, uh, ending to that. You know, it's all condemnation at the beginning. But, but uh, the, the remainder of that is, is a lovely read. So I'll leave that in uh, your own time. All right, I reckon we can get to the next one. It's a lot, this one, even though it's uh, one of the shorter verses that's in Jude. So now we come to verse 11. We've got one unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and they perished in the gainsaying of Kor. And then I want to do the first, uh, first part of verse 12. These are spots in your face. So that's his example. And there's three of them. It's another triplet. Woe unto them. They've gone under the way of Cain, uh, ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Then verse 12. These are spots in your feasts of charity. He's talking about the individuals that have crept in here again. These, these people. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Now there's a whole lot of descriptors that he uses after that, but I specifically want to focus on verse, the beginning of verse 12 because it really links in with verse 11 here. <clears throat> so, the word woe, and I just wanted to cover off on this, it exists in both Greek and Hebrew with, the, with the, the Strong's numbers up there for anybody that's interested. It is pretty much always associated with judgment and the condemnation of sin. It is used 51 times by the prophets, and over 40 of those times are just prior to a warning. So the fact that Jude's using it here, and the fact that these individuals know their, 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 their scripture, this is, this is the bold and italics and underlined of his time. Woe, woe unto them, okay? Now, there are three examples that he's got. Cain, 
Balaam and Kor or Korah. Um, and we'll go through some of the stories in the two minutes that we've got left. Um, but effectively, what I want to emphasize here is that the order is important. Because Korah, chronologically in the book of, of numbers we're talking about, so Cain's obviously in Genesis, um, but we've got Balaam and Korah. They're from the book of Numbers, right? But Korah comes before Balaam in that story. And there's a reason why, and that's because he's ordering them here in order of severity, right? The condemnation is, makes that very obvious. That's not me saying, again, test, scripture, test what I'm saying with Scripture. I'm saying that they're done in order of severity. You have a look at the condemnations that are listed out in Genesis and Numbers. They're in order of severity, right? It's very obvious. So... <clears throat> Another rule of three, we've got three. And here he's using the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, not the Greek translation. And I could get into all of the details, but I'd be here for another six sessions talking about it. But again, you can trust me, you could read on it, whatever you want to do here. Um, the references that he's making, even though it's this one tiny little verse, he's packed so much into it, but he's, he's, he's using this Aramaic translation, uh, uh, not the Greek. And we spoke about that at the very beginning, how he uses Old Testament references. He's speaking to a, a Greek audience, a predominantly Greek, uh, with, with a mixture of, of, of converted Jews as well. And he's talking to them, <coughs> um, uh, you know, uh, recalling an older translation to emphasize a point today. So Cain, the, the reference here is from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. And he says, they've gone or walked in the way. This is following the example of someone. He hasn't necessarily called them to follow him, but in whatever position he had and whatever he'd done, there were individuals that chose to elevate him based on what he'd done. Isn't that great? Um, we'll follow this individual. So he's saying, well, unto them, they have gone in the way of Cain. They've followed his example. Now, there are a lot of other Jewish traditional texts uh, texts that said again, alongside of this, non-canonical, but they did exist at that time, the people are aware of it, and that had Cain committing many other sins, but ultimately they came down to a self-love or a self-righteousness. God's condemnation here, exile, Genesis 4.12. He was to become uh, a wanderer in his land, and he had a mark on his head that no one was to kill him. He was exiled, right? Now, at the time, again, in, in, in this, that was probably a punishment worse than death. You were to be exiled. You were cut off from your family. You were cut off from your land. You were cut off from any entitlements that you had. You were done. You walked the earth. You were exiled. <clears throat> now we've got Balaam, right? Um, and I, I could go into some detail. Oh, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> so uh, at this, uh, in the book of Numbers here, so we've got a lot of references, but effectively at this point in time, uh, Israel had defeated most of its opposition. It was close to entering the promised land. There was one king left, the king uh, of, of the Moabites. He had hired Balaam to curse Israel. Interestingly, Balaam said he couldn't do it unless Yahweh told him that he could. I'm not quite sure what that reference is, is in so, whether it was just putting on a front saying, look, I believe in God and I'll only do it if he says I can. Um, so the, the king sends Balaam more money. He says yes. He's on his way. And then the famous incident with the donkey. Um, there's an angel standing before the donkey. Balaam can't see it. He's whipping the donkey. And God gives the ability for the donkey to speak. And that, that would have absolutely blown his mind at that point. You think that that might have been a tipping point for him to, to recognize the, the, the authority of the Lord. Not that he existed, but his authority. He, he does in a way. He meets up uh, with the king. But instead of cursing Israel, he blesses him. This happens two more times. It's a, it's a very interesting story. The book of Numbers is, is an inter a very interesting book. Um, I've got a big appetite for it based on what I've read so far. Uh, but then Balaam decides, for whatever reason, that he's going to get Israel to 
sin themselves. He'll corrupt them more subtly. I'm not going to curse them outright. And this is, this, this is why Jude brings it up as an example. This is a subtle thing. He basically introduces prostitutes into the mix. The men fall for them in that army. They, those women then also introduce them to their god, Baal, this reference that we read earlier. The, the, the fathers forgot their god and, and followed in the way of Baal. And they had them introduce uh, uh, corrupted food. You know, this is at the love feast. We're, we're talking after the, after, uh, sorry, not a love feast in the extent that it's the Lord's Supper, but in the feast that they would have surrounding their food, it was to be clean food. These were, this was food that was also introduced to these pagan gods that they were consuming during this time. So Balaam basically corrupted a nation for money and for favour. <clears throat> so in the first one we had following right? Following in the way of Cain. Here we've got an error which is straying, wandering off the path. Kind of sounds the same. I've walked after Cain or I've wandered off the path. But the next bit, run greedily. In Greek, to plunge into. This is a committed action. This isn't an accident. I didn't miss the path because I wasn't paying attention. I chose to follow this. I chose to enter in with these prostitutes. I chose to enter unclean food. It wasn't that they realized, oh, it had been sacrificed to a pagan god. They knew what they had done at that particular point in time. The condemnation here, Balaam had a death in battle. That's in Numbers and in Joshua. But for Israel, it was the death of all male children and non-virgin women. And that's in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, verses 17 to 18. Now, you'd think that Balaam's would be the heftier of the, of the condemnation here, but Israel knew better. That's the difference. They knew better. They were, they were saved. There were individuals that were saved. They, they committed an action. They wandered off the right path. Now we've got Korah. Do I do it? Should I do the last one or should I wrap it up? Do it? All right, I'll do it quick. All right, Numbers 16, verse 1 to 35. <laughs> if I get the, If pastor comes in upset, I'm blaming all of you, okay? Um... I was actually going to read all the references, but, but we can do it in our own time. Here we've got the term perished, fully destroyed. There's no wandering, there's no following after. They're done from the get-go with Korah. Right? Gainsaying here, this is the rebellion. This is the direct challenge of God's sovereignty. It was loud and it was proud. There were 250 of them that stood up against uh, Moses here and said, we want to be in, in, in authority. What are you doing here? Um, in, in chapter 16, and they rose up before Moses with a, a certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of assembly, famous in the congregation of men of renown. So these were recognized individuals. They had some authority within that, and instead of using it for the right purposes, they used it selfishly, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said unto thee, ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is coming, uh, the Lord is among them, wherefore then ye lift up yourselves amongst the congregation of the Lord. They missed the point. He didn't appoint himself, God appointed them, and they knew that full well. And this was an open rebellion. God's condemnation, the, his divine destruction, Korah and all of their cohorts and their family swallowed up by the earth, number 1632. 250 incense burners were consumed, number 1635, and 14,700 people killed in a plague, number 1649. That's why they're in the order that they're in. If it's, if it's obvious to see from exile to thousands of people destroyed, there is, a, there, there is an example in each of them. They are different. But it's a going after, sorry, a wandering in the way. Sorry, my apologies. What was the terminology in the first one? Sorry, I've gone in the way. So, so following after someone and, and, and recognizing, hey, there's some authority here. I'd like to follow that. Versus a wandering off the path as a committed action versus just an out and out challenge of God's authority. 
the punishment is very obvious and he is calling that into mind and he's saying, woe unto them. This is an example and it is coming. So I think we'll end it there. Um, I'd like to do the beginning of 12, but there is a lot to it. Um, but effectively, uh, it is another triplet. It is another example of, of the punishment that comes to these individuals that have injected themselves and are corrupting. The difference here as well, and I will skip this, so we will come back, but what I wanted to highlight here, <coughs> hopefully it's large enough. Verses 5 to 8, that is individuals failing to contend for the faith and God's divine judgment as a group. Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, followed by an example of the interlopers. Then in 9 and 10, you've got moral relativism versus spiritual maturity and discernment. Right? Again, ending with an example for us to understand. Here, we have another triplet. It's failing to contend for the faith in God's divine judgment, as it was in verses 5 to 7. But here, this is individuals. These are rebels who corrupted others. Here, this was a group following the group mentality. Right? It's okay because everyone's doing it in Sodom and Gomorrah. Some of the angels are doing it. I might as well follow. Everyone's complaining. I might as well add to that. That's a group mentality. Here, it's an individual. I want to walk in the way of Cain. I want to run after Balaam. And I'm just going to be destroyed along with Korah. It's a conscious decision. But these were rebels who corrupted others. Here, be mindful of mob mentality. Here, be mindful of the whispers in the ears from other individuals that are there to corrupt God's word. Now, we've got some, uh, another example in 12 to 13, but uh, we won't get to that today. That's what I wanted to, to, to get across. I know it's a lot to absorb. I'll also, once this is all done, um, make the presentation into a PDF and put it up on um, Sermon Audio with all of the audio for this. So we'll do a quick prayer and then we'll let everyone in. Apologies, but thank you for, uh, for listening to me. Uh, Lord, thank you again for, uh, for letting us get uh, through as much of your word as possible today. Um, if anything, I hope it, it, it's opening our eyes to the fact that in in 12 verses or 11 that we've gotten through in the past four weeks, Lord, that your word is so deep. It is something that needs your spiritual discernment. It is not something that we can achieve on our own. And we thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you've given us and for, for taking the scales off of our eyes to understand what you would have for us, what you would want for us, and how you want us to earnestly contend for your faith. As, uh, as we... Um, head into the service proper, Lord. We ask that you would uh, that you would keep these things in the back of our minds, that we would be able to take these home with us, and uh, and and just continue to um, uh, think and 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 meditate on your word for your glory and for your satisfaction. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.